what conditions are stipulations. Oh, it's oh, it's a great photo of you. Yeah. Wow, you guys almost look like the same person. I know. Photo. Uh, we're talking about Kirsten Cinema, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema, bisexual icon. Yeah, the first Kirsten Cinema. Was she the first bisexual rep too? I think because she was first in the House of Representatives. Uh, I think she's the. I know she's the only now, openly bisexual. Right, openly. I say That's openly because we know there are closeted ones in there. Qualifier. Forever, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. I think she's the only openly bisexual senator, and she probably was the only openly bisexual. I think so. Could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I go. think I heard about it when she was first elected. But yeah, so we're talking about her because she took a lot of heat today for something so inane. So. Kirsten Cinema. if you don't know who she is, she's a senator from Arizona, Mackenzie Brennan's wonderful home state of AZ. Uh, She is, as we said before, openly bisexual. um, She's also an Ironman triathlete. So think about that. Mm -hmm. Bisexual triathlete. One, two, three, baby. She's pretty cute. Um, Yeah, yeah, we all know she's adorable. She wears thigh highs. On the mm. Senate floor. She also has a habit of wearing really brightly colored wigs, um, especially since people have been, especially since she's been wearing a mask on the Senate floor. She's been, she started wearing these wigs as like some self expression. I think so that's a like, great idea and I'm gonna start doing it actually. I wish wigs it's were cheaper, great. but yeah. Side note. As someone who has dyed my hair pretty much every color and fried my hair while doing yeah. so, it's um, I understand. Yeah, it's. But it's also I mean, like, I've it's, done it also. I don't expression. I don't say it no, as terrible any for your hair. Aspersion casting, but more just like, you can only do it for so long to the hair growing out of your head. Yeah. Um, thus, no, absolutely. Me it's... having no hair now, and you having like very. I chose babied. one color. Yeah. 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 So yeah, we want to come out, out of the gate in active support of Kirsten Cinemas mint green wig which i get like i don't know she had the audacity to have a mint green wig on when going to work uh which yeah, someone i don't even know who I'm it was it. yeah you're a voter you're you're a voter from I'm arizona her former and you employee, say and i am a voter i am her constituent we should disclose that and, yeah oh yeah i should disclose that that i did Mackenzie work for her campaign yeah worked for uh, kirsten cinema's campaign back when she was first um, running to be representative so i mean the uh, the outcome speaks for itself Ladies and gents, how it's be a winner? Me. Have a winner on your it team. Mackenzie's a winner. <laughs> all we do is win. I, yeah, some Drop random dude on Twitter said like a, a quote tweeted yeah a picture of Kirsten Cinema wearing a, a beautiful mint green wig that she absolutely killed in mm-hmm. with this is a sitting female U.S. senator. Like who are you? So snotty about it. I look forward to never knowing who you are. No, I didn't even check. And he not went, he went viral. It. He's a, he's some kind of commentator or pundit or something. He went viral because he ratioed, as the kids say. And here's the thing. Here's my problem with people like this: is that it's Kirsten Cinema. If you check any Facebook post she makes, if you check any tweet she sends, 
there are always these absolutely rabid, so insane people in her mentions. It's very similar to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yes. in I that think way. It is. And we've talked about that syndrome of like hot, younger, left-wing mm-hmm. women and how angry it makes conservative men to be like, I'm kind of attracted to you, but I also... So I can't do the you're ugly insult, which is yeah. always what the women get, right? regardless of what career they're in, regardless of how old, how successful, whatever. That's the go-to. So it's like, I can't do that in Because the faith. worst thing... Yeah, the worst thing they can... The worst thing men like that can say about you yes. in their eyes is, I don't is you. you're ugly. Right. Yeah, the worst insult they can come up with in their mind right. about women is you're ugly. Which basically, when I wake up in the morning and I take stock of my self-worth, as I do, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, tallying up the points, I think, does Dale Martinsburg want to fuck me today? And then... The answer is no. What do you have to live for? Then I get right back into bed and I keep being ugly there. So, <laughs> you know what? This is exceedingly persuasive and I am the heinous beast known on some days as Mackenzie Brennan. Oof. And I am the underworld gremlin, Hot sometimes bitch. known as Brooke Rogers. Sometimes other stuff. Welcome to our show. Pick your favorite. <laughs> but there is, I, I do, I do truly believe, like there is this. It, it's amazing to me how often I see men on the internet combat a woman's idea with you're, you're hideous yeah. or you're fat. Or, I mean, think of Nancy Pelosi. I would never want to sleep with you. On the other yeah. end of the, like, she's not a young, hot person inspiring ire, but she is an older, more tried and true, has been in the business forever. And what do you see when you look at comments or videos of her? It's like, oh my God, she's so ugly. Oh my God, look at that face. So terrifying. All of the things like, you could ugh. criticize Nancy Pelosi right. about, and you choose her look. Yeah. That just means not only are you uncreative, but you're stupid. Yeah, because yeah. Because you didn't bother to is, be like, Brooke, it doesn't matter. Here that are you these legitimate that. criticisms. Because your worth does not come from your ideas, it starts and stops skin deep. So, As we have already established, your opinion of my looks does not affect me because I am a genderless, uh, fleshy thing that lives underground. Cut her in half, so. she'll grow back a second torso. Um, That's me. Yeah, maybe an excess one, maybe a surplus torso. Um, maybe a surplus. So we got some, we're going to talk about Portland today and federal law enforcement versus state law enforcement. What the fuck is going on? What's allowed? Uh, we got some awesome listener comments and questions through the last two weeks, I think, but yeah. um, some of them through Twitter and Instagram, and some through the blog on our new website, which is still under construction, but Ethan Lindsay but is killing great. it, and we got some comments that we're going to address in this episode that were on the blog post from last week. Yeah. Boo! Right, so let's talk about what the hell is going What's on in Portland, Brooke? Oregon. Nope. Um if you've been not paying attention the last couple of weeks, maybe just sort of paying attention because there are a lot of things going yeah, on. Yeah, paying attention to any you only have number of the terrifying things happening in our world. There so are a lot, lot of points on the board. You're uh-huh. just trying to figure out what goes where. Uh, over the last week, federal officials, that as far as we know, uh, federal <laughs> officials have been entering Portland... And Oregon, not Maine. Uh, in, 
yeah, Portland, Oregon, in unmarked vehicles and arresting protesters. Uh, sometimes they have, it sounds like they, we're not actually 100% sure, but sometimes they have patches on their arm. Um, sometimes they're not clearly marked at all what agency they belong to, but I mean, they are um, moving lies, into Portland. Therein lies the, the rub, issue. right? That we don't fully know who they are or who's who or why they're there. Uh, they have been entering Portland in unmarked vehicles and arresting protesters. Uh, to give a little background on this, um, the protests have been going on for more than 50 days. Uh, it's been almost two months of protests in response to uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, as well as other uh, extrajudicial killings of black Americans at the hands of police mm-hmm. and vigilantes. We saw with Ahmed Arbery's case yeah, and true. others. Um, so this is in response. This is your Black Lives Matter protests in response to Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others. Um, and it's been about seven weeks of protests so far. And because change has not really materialized in any sort of meaningful way, so there has been very little local uh, response to the protest in terms of actual fundamental change happening. So the protests have been ongoing, uh, and then this week, Trump deployed federal law enforcement into Portland, Oregon, um, in a measure that many are seeing as sort of a, a an, an iron fist being brought down on a protest in a liberal city. Um, it's authoritarian. And we'll kind of, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll dig into potential motivations for that in a little bit. Um, but just to, just to answer some quick, just to clear up some quick facts. Um, as far as we know, the agents come from the U.S. Marshals Special Operations Group. And uh, the New York Times reported that other law enforcement officials uh, were from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection okay. Team. It's a special team. It's uh, known as BORTAC. It's basically the Border Patrol's equivalent of a SWAT team. Um, this team is trained for investigating drug smuggling operations. And CBP is so, <clears throat> obviously a federal agency that's... Yeah, so we're when so, we're talking about a lot of these, it's just different federal agencies that have their own enforcement bodies, but it is national government versus state. Right, there is a distinction between the local police who have been um, at odds with the protesters for the last seven weeks and the federal law enforcement officers who have been moving in in full force in the last week or so. Without great explanation and, either. And Absolutely. I'd also add here, because there was a, a TRO, I guess, that was issued in Oregon in a federal court, but that applied... Could you explain what the TRO oh, is? Yeah, please? okay, so temporary restraining order. Thank you. Um, so there's a temporary restraining order that was issued by a federal court in Oregon, but that applied to the state and local law enforcement before any of this recent stuff happened. And that was because of local law enforcement's abuse of force and disproportionate violence in response to the protests. So it was stuff like using tear tear gas, rubber bullets, um, you know, stuff that we've seen in a lot of these protests. Quote, unquote, less lethal weapons that can still cause lifelong injury. Yeah, yeah. Especially we're talking about we're in a pandemic that affects the respiratory system, but like let's hamper people's ability to breathe and make them panic. Um, But so the, the TRO, the temporary restraining order, 
restricted that kind of violence from local law enforcement, but because it was before the federal law enforcement officials were sent in, it did not apply to federal law enforcement. So, lo and behold, weirdly not in coordination with the local law enforcement, which would be the one thing you kind of could explain, because it's like, oh, these fuckers outsourced their violence. But no, actually the, the mayor of Portland says it's making it worse, and he wants them to leave. The governor has filed a lawsuit to try to figure out what the hell is going on. So this is not in coordination with state officials. And that, I think, is uh, an important point to make. So both uh, so Ted Wheeler is the mayor of Portland. Yeah. He also serves as the police commissioner of Portland, which mm-hmm. I don't know if that is common, but I have never seen that before in a big city. In New York City, we have our mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio. We have our police commissioner, Derma Shea. We'll we say do not doing have a great job, but it does seem. But they're like separated, less of a and it's important to have them separated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so Ted Wheeler, he's the mayor of Portland, wow. also serves as police commissioner. Uh, he's been telling feds to get out of Portland, and he has been pushing back aggressively against. Well, at least from a, a rhetorically a vocal, aggressively. Yeah. yeah he, yes, he's been vocal about the federal official uh, federal officers moving out of Portland. However. Protesters don't like him because, as I said before, he's also the police commissioner, yeah. and, and they have been—they have, yeah, they have received uh, abuse at the hands of local officers. So he's now sort of taking this time to establish a platform <laughs> of being anti-federal intervention. Yeah, while also kind of not not being a great spokesman for this because his police force has been abusive toward protesters it's like over the, the devil- last more than 50 days. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't, I guess. And they literally don't know who these people are who are coming in and snatching people off the streets. So I guess that's right. preferable. Count your blessings. But I think the I think the protesters are just see it as um, uh, authoritarianism from two different levels, yeah. right? It's authoritarianism and abuse from their local government, mm-hmm. which is frustrating enough. And then it's authoritarianism and abuse from the federal government. And yeah. now you have your mayor and your governor stepping in and saying that they are anti-federal in- intervention while also failing to protect you from your own local police force. Yeah. And the the frustration that must come from that and the feeling of betrayal and just the distrust in government at every level it's must be extremely people, overwhelming I for know. those protesters. I mean, I think of... A, Obviously, I'm somebody who is more into... I don't like people who... Let me revise that. I don't like the argument of things like, well, I don't vote because I don't want to participate in the system. It's like the government's never going to come and knock on your door and be like, oh, I noticed that you didn't vote. Like, what can we do to make that better for you? So I do think that participating in the system to change it tends to be better. But if you don't come at it from that perspective... I mean, I felt that way for years... But if you're thinking of people who are getting involved for the first time, who have reason to be disenfranchised by the system, there's not a lot of reason to feel like the quote-unquote proper channels uh, are susceptible to change or input. But um, at least the Attorney General of the state of Oregon has now filed this suit, which um, ironically, and this was so telling when I heard this, I, I think it was on NPR this morning, but that... The defendants who are named, so the law enfor- the federal law enforcement officials that they're actually naming in this lawsuit by the Oregon Attorney General, um, they don't even know who they are. So it has to be John Doe one through ten, 
So, I mean, right. talk and think about, about the implications of that. Yeah. The implications that the Attorney General of right. the state of Oregon Filing doesn't even know. Doesn't Filing know. in federal court doesn't have the information that she needs yeah. in order to file a lawsuit on behalf of the citizens of Oregon. And yeah. the Attorney General who has filed that lawsuit, uh, her name is Ellen Rosenblum, mm-hmm. uh, and she has filed, she sued the Department of Homeland Security and other Good. agencies this last week over the deployment. The American Civ- Civil Liberties Union also filed a lawsuit uh, this last Friday to protect journalists from police tactics, and that's another mm-hmm. interesting uh, development from these, exactly, right. from these protests is that uh, people who you would not traditionally think of as quote-unquote journalists right. are being recognized oh, as journalists true. because they're doing things that mainstream media won't do. They are, or can't. Um, th- there yeah, are I mean, several... You can't be everywhere at once, right? Like, No, absolutely, but there are, uh, there are on the, quote-unquote on-the-ground protests or journalists who were not recognized as journalists before, but probably deserve the the they, they absolutely deserve the protection and cover of being called journalists because they journalists have specific protections right. um it's a strong because of free speech laws to make to absolutely. say that like this person is not just a civilian protesting but there's somebody who is I mean, there are journalists just covering yeah. yeah the protests and there have been these sort of uh amateur journalists freelance journalists who have been emerging uh, throughout these protests because they have been covering, they started as protesters themselves, but they've been covering these uh, protests since day one, and they've been, you know, diving into clouds of tear gas and mm-hmm. standing up to uh, abusive mm-hmm. law enforcement officers and recording everything that's going on and, and, and publishing it on Twitter. Again, yeah. A- absolutely. Putting themselves in danger to record what's happening and they have been, um, in some cases, arrested or uh, or injured. Some, not even just uh, amateur journalists. They're uh, a journalist of the New York Times, and I'm so sorry, I uh, the name escapes me. But a journalist of the New York Times was tweeting yesterday about how he was injured during a protest after announcing multiple times that he was a journalist. And it kind of brings into question, yeah, it happened not only in uh, in. Portland most recently, but it's happened in Minneapolis, it's happened in New York City. Mm-hmm. There, it's, it's, it's becoming very clear that journalists uh, are not being afforded the same um, room, the, the, the same to, uh, ability right. to report as they used to it be. It doesn't carry the same weight uh, and protection that it used to, which is, it, it has scary in constitutional part, implications for sure. Yeah. In part, Potentially because of the rhetoric of this administration. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it all fits anti-press mm-hmm. since the very beginning. And um, anti-press in practice, too. So I think that one thing that you and I had talked about when we were first discussing this um, was the way that Trump has branded the protesters and using those labels as easy ways to dismiss, and this kind of ties into what you're saying about free speech law and First Amendment law, um, that today I heard some soundbite of him, kind of a throwaway line saying like, oh, these people in Oregon protesting, they're anarchists, they're agitators, which is not a thing that is illegal per se. I mean, you, you can't say that having a certain viewpoint or being a protester, what is essentially a synonym for a protester, Um, is a basis for bringing federal law enforcement ire down on a whole city with no warning. Um, And under the First Amendment, under that body of law, 
there is a pretty flat-out prohibition on any sort of restrictions or law enforcement actions or laws that target things based on viewpoint. So the way that I put it before was if one person's a communist, another person's a fascist, and then a law targets only communists based on the viewpoint that they're expressing, that's not okay. You can't pick a political party, you can't pick an ideology and brand it as negative. That is anti-First Amendment, full stop. So, I, I mean, the workaround is to do this weird, like, labeling as terrorist groups thing, which is what we've seen him try to maneuver, but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. We can step back to jurisdiction, maybe, federal versus And I state. think, well, also rhetoric is important, I think, because, uh, first of all, yeah, it's, it's this a way to skirt around skirt around protection of the First Amendment, yeah. protection of free speech, Just erode is it to slowly. label people anarchists, agitators, and we saw that. So uh, at, uh, in late June, Trump actually signed an executive order. The executive order on protecting American monuments, memorial statue, and combating recent criminal violence. It was issued on June 26, 2020. And I think this is one of those things that really skirted under, um, under the common... I it, most right. people didn't really pay attention to well, it because it sounds because... like it's just about the statues too, right? It's like, oh, of course, it's it's their brand standing about where they stand on that, but now we're no, absolutely, it, it, it seems kind of like a culture war yeah. move in order Symbolic. to like establish themselves as pro pro history, pro statue. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna protect Yay. the statues of General Lee because you know who doesn't history. love to support losers. Um, <laughs> The, but the uh, the language of the actual executive order is really terrifying, and I think that it kind of went under the radar because this is one of those things we talked about before. But there's so much going it's on. Small potatoes, yeah, and because you probably can't you can dump it. this on us, right? I think right. That another big part of it is that uh, scary rhetoric from him is not so surprising. This is the first time, arguably, that we've seen it put into effect with actual like deploying of law of federal law enforcement um but this is this is abuse of an executive order yeah. uh the likes of which i really haven't seen and it's 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 interesting as someone who has um worked in right-wing circles mm -hmm. and uh you know I, I was raised in a red state i was raised in wyoming and i have always had a very libertarian view on a lot of things I sort of despise executive orders except for in the most extreme circumstances or like when they're absolutely necessary because I think that they are circumventing the checks and balances that uh, voters not only um, require but are owed in our government. Well, and they serve a solely rhetorical purpose. And I think that that's where, I mean, you sure. see like the Obama administration having an agency, it's, it's adjacent to executive order, but often in tandem with saying, like, we interpret this to protect transgender students, things like that, that you can use it to positive or negative ends with the knowledge that it's not enforceable, but you're still using that bully pulpit sort of thing. So I think, I think you're right that it can be abused and often is meant to try to do that, but there's also a flip side positive application of that to be like, hey, we're going to come out here and say this is where we stand. I think that even though executive orders can and have been used in positive ways that I agree with on a, from a political standpoint, I don't like their use as a, as a bludgeon in mm -hmm. order to enact policy yeah. or um, even, even rhetoric that ultimately, again, is just circumventing yeah. the process that we have in place. In and I order think it's for... dipping a toe in the water. It's like, and you see it so much with Trump, it's like, let me see yeah. if 
people get really mad about the wording of this. No? Okay. Well, good to know that let's try to actually put it into practice. Let's not make it rhetoric. And Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And coming from, coming from a red state, coming from a libertarian background, you know, Wyoming is in general a very libertarian state, and, like, the... the the, the rhetoric I often heard around executive orders, especially during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. was that, you know, Obama is so flippant with these executive orders. He just, he whips them out all the time, and he uses them and abuses them. And to see, again, like, th- this language be used in, 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 sorry, to see this language be used in an executive order and almost no fuss made about yeah. it. Is terrifying. So I'm just going to read and a little, a few of these lines. Yeah, no. Yeah, and then put into practice it. as we've seen in, in Portland. So this is the um, again an executive order that uh, Trump signed on June 26th. This is just some of the language that I'm going to read out. Many of these rioters, arsonists, and left wing extremists hmm. who have carried out and supported these acts have explicitly identified themselves with ideologies such as Marxism that call for the destruction of the American system of government. So already he's identifying an antagonist, a bad guy. Well, and he's labeling a lot of political viewpoints. And you can see the gears turning, certainly not with him, but you can imagine, like, legal advisors and policy folks that he keeps around him saying, you know, you can't just say leftist because that is so obviously just a political party. So pair it with destroying our way of life so that, I mean, everything is getting really close to McCarthyism. Yeah. yeah, it's not just the viewpoint, but it's the viewpoint and the fact that they want to destroy our system in some sort of misty, nebulous way, that they're not just disagreeing with us, but they're disagreeing with us with an extra punch that we're not going to tell you about. And uh, all of our listeners should look up the executive order and read it themselves, but I'm, again, I'm just reading it's certain uh, yeah. lines from this. These criminal acts are frequently planned and supported by agitators, again, there's the word agitators, mm. Who have traveled across state lines, establishing so, federal a jurisdiction. federal jurisdiction over Which again, over what's going on? That would be Congress, though. So we see a distinction in what can actually be enforced by the executive, because the Commerce Clause is delegating that power to Congress. But he's right. trying to but at least put it. He's in his trying to court establish more than the state's court authority over it. Yeah. These radicals shamelessly attack legitimacy of our institutions and the very rule of law itself. Uh, so he goes on to basically establish for himself the right to deploy federal officers uh, into these areas to arrest and quote-unquote protect memorials or federal buildings. Maybe um, just strengthen his story, because is... like, it doesn't inherently form any authority on its own, but it's like, like I said before, dipping a toe in the water about public reception and also kind of creating a, a record that if you were pushed to say, like, well, why did you think that this was within the federal government's authority? Well, I mean, as you can see reflected in our executive order, they're crossing state lines. So obviously yeah. interstate commerce. We have this memorialized. And it's establishing a narrative, like right? Yes, exactly. establishing a narrative that Quietly. gives him power to um, deploy federal law enforcement into these cities where he is clearly not wanted and that's something that you know again we mentioned but local authorities not only have been pushing against federal intervention in in the cities and honestly other federal officials who are actually in congress which would be the body invoked if you were doing commerce clause power right two senators the uh, two democratic senators from oregon yeah let me see here so not only do 
the the local mayor Ted Wheeler again has pushed against this. The, the governor Kate Brown has opposed Trump deploying federal officers into Portland. Both of them have said that the situation was actually calming down, mm-hmm. and that van- like quote, uh, according to them, quote unquote, vandalism and violence had been reduced. Well, they had that TRO in the days before this. So yeah, absolutely. Kinda, yeah. They, they apparently had gotten a lid on it, according to them, and. I'm sure that protesters would disagree with the the moves they were making, but Maybe both the perfect, local, yeah, but. right, the mayor and the governor had both said like, we're, we don't have a problem. Why are you here? Why are you deploying these federal law enforcement officers and into nobody Portland? Nobody talked to us about this. Like nobody, no one asked them, and that that should that's really the that story, should yeah. terrify um, from a free speech perspective. From a uh, states' rights perspective, separation of powers. From, yeah, uh, yeah, separation of powers. Just, just a, the agency of not only individuals but states themselves. So, if you are um, a right-wing person, if you are a person who believes in small government, if you're a person who believes in freedom of speech, all of this should terrify you. Left-wing people are upset at this for obvious oh, right, reasons. Right. You know, that's true. Black Lives that's Matter so protesters obvious. are being being attacked and abused perspective right so like such a tenet of federalism which is you know it's a system that we have i know it gets kind of convoluted to talk about going back to like federalist and anti-federalist but essentially what it means is that we have a federal government but we also have some rights reserved to the states so it's that balance that's what federalism is and so the beauty of it is that there is coordination between the authority delegated to each respective body and it really it benefits everybody in some way it now striking the balance is where the the conflict often comes up but it's it's very rarely to never the case that it's like oh the federal government just didn't tell us and they're gonna step in now where they arguably don't have authority to begin with and we can get into that a little bit because i know some of the questions that we got were about where the jurisdiction starts why they're allowed to be there if they're allowed to be there um what if they're not and who can do what kind of thing. So worth discussing. But the first step is that it really is unprecedented that not only are we questioning whether there is federal authority here, but the states don't even know who these people are, let alone why they're here and what they're going to do. Not only did the federal government, not only did the Trump administration not ask for permission to move into these cities, He's actively working against yeah. the locally elected mayor and governor, and which date. means that he's actively working against what voters in that city and in that state want. And it's not like he's working in favor of any voters' wishes on a national scale. It's not like in the federal elections, because you see the senators, like you were saying, both Oregon senators are against it as well. So, But he, there is a point to Trump doing this, right? Yeah. The, the, the point of Trump doing this is that he's trying to signal to his voters that he is a law and order president. He's trying to see he a liberal Matter. city. He's anti-Black Lives Matter. He's pro-law and order. He's signaling to his constituents in red states that he will bring the hammer down on liberal uh, politicians and in liberal states yeah. to, to dampen this sentiment that there needs to be structural change. Yeah. It's, 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 it is an election year tactic... Uh, because obviously among his base, these protests are not popular. Right. And he's saying, I will not only um, throw my weight around when it comes to liberal 
local politicians, liberal mayors and governors, he's saying, I will not allow structural change Mm -hmm. in the United States. And it's this fear-based lobbying and strongman rhetoric. I mean, I've already seen so many. The ads here in Arizona are hilarious. Like, the political ads are remarkable because it's so absurd to me. And it should strike so many people as absurd, but, like, they'll have the defund the police ads, and it's some old woman trying to call the police, and it's like, we're sorry, Joe Biden doesn't want the police to be funded, so your call will be answered later. And somebody's at the door, like, literally, this was on TV last night, somebody's at the door with a crowbar, and this old woman's like, oh, geez, but Joe Biden doesn't want the police funded. So you see that kind of all falling into place, and it's like, but Daddy Trump will he'll step in. Even if the states are crazy, I'll send in the big guns. But what he's actively doing is chilling free speech. He's actively suppressing free speech, which is a constitutionally protected right, and maybe one of our most sacred constitutionally protected rights. Well, they put it there for a reason. To free speech. Yeah, First Amendment. And this is a great segue. So we can talk about some of the, the balancing acts that occur here between First Amendment rights and when those are limited. Also between federal versus state jurisdiction, when those two get coextensive. Uh, And then obviously a big question is due process and search and seizure detention sort of rights, because a lot of people have apparently been whisked away by law enforcement that maybe wasn't authorized to be there, certainly was not identifying themselves as a party authorized to be there. And for questionable commissions of non-crimes, like... A habeas corpus comes in too then because we don't know what they're being charged with if they're being detained and that's a problem but we'll break it down step by step so like you said first amendment pretty important and I, I do tend to think that the placement is not an accident the first amendment addresses free speech right to assembly and one that is often lost in the shuffle but is really uh, relevant here which is the right of citizens to petition their government for redress And obviously that doesn't just mean petition, petition. It's not like change.org endorsement, but to advocate, essentially. So I think that protest, you could argue, covers a lot of that ground. I know that you and I have talked about the fact that a lot of these rights are not absolute, even though they're in the Constitution. So the quintessential example that I always give is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because then you're endangering other people. You can't make credible threats of violence on somebody else. You can't be, like, calling your boss every day and telling them that you're going to murder them in an explicit... Like, you will suffer some repercussions, and they will be... The repercussions will be legal, because the balancing there, the speech, is less valuable. But political speech, protest speech, because of how our country came about, is valued very high. And viewpoint restrictions are almost never allowed. So you put those two things together, you think political protest and federal action that is targeting people based on viewpoint or party, you're going to have to make a pretty good case for why we need to target these people. And not to say that crimes were not committed or are never committed, but there better be exceptionally strong evidence. So that's our First Amendment crash course for the purposes of this. So the obvious like follow-up question is, is deploying these federal law enforcement officers a violation of the First Amendment when they're moving into these cities and arresting protesters for very, <laughs> yeah, very ambiguous, if not non-existent reasons? Have they said why? Have they addressed that yet? Or is that 
I haven't seen anything that... And the, another scary part of this is, like, we don't even really know where these protesters are going. The, uh, there have been reports that they just will drive protesters around for an hour and a half and then let them go in the middle of nowhere, so uh, which actually I saw the same reports um, of that. I oof, There was another... In Los Angeles, uh, during the protests in Los mm. Angeles, I saw reports of people... Um, who were just driven around for an hour and a half and let go in the middle of nowhere, um, and they had to find their own way back to the city. Um, it seems like, to an extent, that's what's happening. Maybe it not seem- actively aggressive, but certainly detention, and we'll we'll get to that being tantamount to an arrest, and that that's right. The scary part for many protesters in Portland is like, if you truly don't know what's happening to all these protesters. <laughs> Who's to say they're not just being carted off and Nobody thrown knows. into a jail cell? I mean, you call your local police uh, one time that you really could use local law enforcement assistance, and they don't even know. And the state's attorney general gets involved, and no, still nobody knows. And federal courts get involved, and we still don't know. So it's like, that's, that is such a scary disconnect to me, even beyond... There's the one level of, is it legal, and is it constitutional? And we we hash that out often. That's the level things get to in this presidency. But then there's the additional, like, ethical, moral, uh, social value sort of level, which is, do we, if we can make an argument, sure, fine. But do we want to be making that argument? Is this a hill we want to die on? I think the question that continues to come up in this administration, but just in the the way, in the trajectory that we've been moving into as a society in general, Mm -hmm. is do we want to live like this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. The question is, do you want to live like this? Do you want to live under an administration that will, on the, you know, drop of a hat, send in federal law enforcement officers to round up protesters who are exercising their constitutionally protected First Amendment rights Yeah. without, you know, without giving them due process at all. Yeah. And we'll but get basically to kidnapping too, yeah. them. Like, we don't even know what hat dropped either. It's not like you can anticipate right. and, and live in a way that, which is unhealthy too, societally, but uh, you can't live in a preventative way. Uh, but I, in any event, um, so... If this isn't abuse of power, <laughs> if this is not abuse of power, what is, what is to you? And I, if, uh, yeah. If the government essentially kidnapping people for either hours at a time or just taking them to we don't know where at this point and not identifying themselves in unmarked vehicles, if that's not authoritarianism, if that's not tyranny, then what is to you? Because there is no reason why they will not come after you tomorrow. Even if you're right-wing, if you are a God-fearing, gun-owning person, and I'm from Wyoming, if you're in Wyoming, if you are in a red state, I'm telling you right now, there is no reason they will not come after you next. Yeah, and you can do the, like I've seen people in Arizona Republican politicians try to do the acrobatics to fall in line and ultimately you can't do it because it's not reasonable what he's asking in a general sense yeah so then it all falls apart but the next bridge that we were going to cross I think was who has power who has jurisdiction is it okay for for feds to be in this position so um like you pointed out in the executive order the commerce clause and also the necessary and proper clause but we'll get to that those are usually the things that are invoked for there to be some sort of federal through congressional roots uh power in situations like this so police power criminal police matters 
law enforcement, all that good stuff, is primarily within the state's purview. So that's the presumption. The Tenth Amendment says that anything not expressly delegated to the federal government in the Constitution or prohibited from the state's exercise in the Constitution is automatically assumed to be reserved for the states. So because things like police and local law enforcement, and it makes sense too, right? Like that's obviously going to be something that smaller bodies more familiar with the area and the laws are better equipped to handle. So the presumption across the country is that police power, criminal law enforcement is generally going to lie with the state. Um, Obviously, there are some exceptions for that. If you are engaging in interstate commerce, which is a really fucking difficult thing to define. And we'll explain how weird that has gotten. So the first case that I think is, oh my God, the body of law here, it's just like, it's so politicized and it's obviously walking a line in the Supreme Court between, like, where the majority is designated at a given time versus where the executive is and where the legislative balance is, because the first one is Lopez, which is the Gun-Free School Zone Act. So federal law trying to step into states and say, like, hey, we're going to pass a national criminal statute that says please don't bring guns into schools. (laughs) Crazy. Um, Well, at the time, and I think this was during the G.W. Bush administration, they struck that down because they said that there was not enough proof that guns affect interstate commerce, which is fine, fair enough, except that there was previous precedent that said that individual wheat farming production intrastate could be aggregated to see the effects on interstate commerce. So it's like, Listen, if we don't protect our weed farmers, you know, who are we really, who's left to protect? If we can see how local wheat boys affect interstate commerce, but like guns in schools, you can't figure out how that might affect such that we can just maybe keep guns off campuses? No? Okay, cool. Um, And then a lovely follow-up building on that. We still have the wheat power, so that's good. But then there's a case called Morrison which was the Violence Against Women Act, which in that act had a provision that said, please sentence rapists. And it was a federal law provision. That was struck down, because it's like, well, we can't really see the effects of violence against women on interstate commerce. And the dissent is like, are you fucking kidding me? When women have to flee, when they can't work in a certain state, when they have to buy something across state lines. Like, oh my god, seriously? Well, that's the danger of trying to decide uh, federal interests based off of this very, like, weird idea of interstate commerce, right? Because right? commerce... But it's... Uh, commerce being the thing that... Commerce... Right. Like, we live under capitalism, therefore commerce mm. is going to be the thing that I just the, mean that the it's, state gauges interest It's something by. that's enumerated. So you don't have to amend the Constitution to... If you can find a way to work this power into that existing box, it's a lot easier because it's like, look, it's right here in the Constitution. Don't have to change a thing. Law of the land. So I think but that that's, is yeah. that is... Uh, square pegs round holes right because so many things are not going to fit under this idea of interstate commerce and yes it might be easier but that's (laughs) a mess i know it's it's stupid right it's It's just just kind of why do we have to do it there there's a societal 
you and I have talked about like is the fix in policy and legislation or is it in cultural values and I think this is one of those things that it's like you got to look at both sides there too because why the hell does the federal government have to be doing the Violence Against Women Act and be setting the floor so low honestly but still the states are fighting it on some states rights basis can you just sentence rapists please um that's a cultural problem so you got both of those things at war with one another, but in the interim, we're going to try to fit these square pegs into round holes. The other thing that, so we have the Commerce Clause, which is power to regulate anything that affects interstate or international commerce, but then there's also Article 1, Section 9, is the Necessary and Proper Clause, which is another exploitable thing that's just, okay, any of the other powers that are delegated to Congress, um, anything that Congress has to do that is necessary and proper to enact those powers, they they have that power too. Which is like, my God, what does that mean? That could mean anything. And so that's often invoked in tandem. It's like, so we have commerce, but also we have anything we gotta do to make the commerce power work. And as we always say, (laughs) potentially something that could have used a little more clarification. Like maybe we put a smidge more on that. Maybe we just define that a little bit better so that we're not just constantly second guessing and what that means or don't and just keep up with the acrobatics because it's kind of fun to watch if you give yourself some distance (laughs) it's like wow a plus on execution i really despite the execution the simone biles absolutely Uh uh-huh just flipping this this law how does she do it i don't know um but so violence against women act apparently was that was another sort of like state law enforcement related thing but apparently was not within federal power uh the last thing that we heard also used the necessary and proper clause plus commerce clause and that was a case called comstock and that was about the government having the federal government having the power to commit and hold sex offenders past the expiration of their sentence so you do see that you get kind of into standard criminal stuff if it's heinous enough, but apparently not violence against women heinous. It's got to be something more than that. Um, but they can figure it's, out how to relate that to commerce in some cases. It's got to affect, like, you know, the economy in some way. Right. you got to stop thinking about, like, protecting women. Right. And you got to start Put thinking about how it affects way. the economy, Mackenzie. Which, like, if a woman's getting abused at home definitely does not affect the economy if she's not going to work. Like, that's ridiculous. But you have to make that argument in order for us to care about it. Please make the argument of how it affects unemployment numbers. Brighter minds than mine have tried and ranted in dissent, which, um, honestly, you know, I know it's a trope at this point that Ginsburg's fiery dissents are worth reading, but oh my god, if you want to see something well put, but also comprehensible, pick up, like, the King versus Burwell, we talked about the Hobby Lobby case last week um, about contraceptive coverage. That one, um, her dissent just, oh, fuck yeah. She really eviscerates in a way that's like, how could you find any other way? But there you go. Um, we do love RBG. We yeah, do love RBG. we're sending right, goddamn so prayers. But we can get to Mackenzie. now. Let's, yeah, tie this all in. How let's does cinch it. I'm how does to... all of this precedent, how do all of these laws in. tie into Portland and the, the presence of federal law enforcement officers right there? So this is um, some of the comments on our latest blog post actually brought this up. So Marissa had asked about federal agents snatching up protesters in Portland. 
Um, and she had said that she wondered if local police could arrest the federal law enforcement officers because they didn't identify themselves. And so is that kind of tantamount to impersonating law enforcement? So unfortunately, it's not as clean cut as all that. I do see the logic there. But you think of things like undercover operations, plainclothes officers. Um, there are enough legal justifications for not being outwardly labeled that that in and of itself isn't the problem. I think where the bigger problem is, is that they weren't identified to anybody. So local law enforcement doesn't fully know what the hell's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. And by the time you do, it's a little too late to do anything constructive. So identifying themselves, yes, I, I agree they should have done that. And I think that the Oregon senators had proposed an amendment to do that. Uh, to and to the yeah, let me bring that up. Actually, it's do, 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 do. I'll say while you're She's looking that yes, they should identify themselves in general. But like so many things, there are exceptions to identifying yourself if there is some greater interest. Like you need to be undercover or exigency and emergency circumstances. So there's always going to be an argument to make. Again, not saying they apply per se, but there are arguments to be made that like would play out in court rather than clean cut on the street also and this is i think an important point to make that uh a protester she was an indigenous protester in portland and she actually said that the federal officers who have been arresting people refused to answer the question are you law enforcement which may have been in some ways trying to protect themselves from that accusation that they're impersonating law enforcement Mm -hmm. but also they do have this sort of federal authority cover over them, which right. is that it's kind of hard to impersonate law enforcement if I mean, you technically not. are law right. enforcement. They're not impersonating. Yeah. The, the bigger question would be, did they have to identify themselves? And I feel like that mostly would come up in response to a resisting arrest sort of thing, because once the person is arrested, the question more becomes about the authority to hold them not about who did it, unless there's a greater question about whether the person who arrested them actually was law enforcement. And I think here, it's going to be more about, did they identify themselves? So I hope that kind of makes sense. It's a, a short answer to a longer question, and a choppy one at that. But um, just before we move off of it, Emmett was another person who had commented in response to that question, and is kind of talking about the showdown potential between the CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol federal agents, and local law enforcement. Honestly, I'll say at the outset, I don't picture a world where they're actually going to tussle in favor of protesters, like law enforcement on law enforcement. No, of course not. (laughs) Local law enforcement has shown at this point that they are... They are... Where they stand. Yeah. I I, I don't even know. Local law enforcement has shown that they are not there to protect protesters, to say the least. Yeah, they're not defenders of the constitutional rights of the protesters. No, they are actively battling against protesters. Uh, They have, as we said before, they have used um, pepper spray and other non-lethal or quote-unquote less lethal (laughs) weapons against protesters. They're not there to protect protesters. Right. So So there's the um, practical answer. But then in a... The idea that they would rise up in defense of protesters against the federal government is... So I'd say that's, like, the de facto answer. The de jure answer, the, like, legal answer, is that it probably wouldn't be that easy, even if they wanted to, because there are so many 
ways to make the authority and jurisdiction of federal law enforcement and state law enforcement coextensive such that they arguably either have the same power or really, really close power. And kind of street hand-to-hand interactions where the federal government is arguing that they do have some reason to be there, that's not going to be the clearest example, especially in terms of preventing it happening in the moment of, like, these people definitely don't have the authority to be there. And the fact that they're not identifying themselves and nobody has a primer for why they're there makes that even harder, because it's like, well, I can't definitively say that they don't have a reason to be here because I don't know who the fuck they are and I don't know why they're here. (laughs) So it's like, I can't prove a negative. I, I don't know. So that's, yeah, no simple under the protection of anonymity mm-hmm. in, in a, a way bit. that, um, and it, that anonymity prevents them from being held accountable. Fucking cowards, which, yeah. No, well, it's, it's a little, it's, it's cowardly, it's like but it's also, I swear, in the simplest, It's cowardly, but it's also, civilians, citizens, and voters yeah. should be able to hold yeah. the government accountable. They should know who is making these decisions, right. who's being used against them in these in these ways, um, if their constitutional rights to free speech are being violated or uh, threatened, they yeah. should know who's threatening them. And the truth of the matter is that federal law enforcement officers have moved in. Um, they've been given anonymity by the Trump administration. They have not identified themselves clearly at all. Uh, and they have been arresting protesters and intimidating protesters who are exercising their right to free speech. Yeah. And continue that to do in so itself, with no express justification, which you would think if they had a good reason, it would have come out by now, right? It, I mean, this is yeah. very speculative. I mean, the reason is but, me is very clear. The reason right. is to suppress protests yeah. in these liberal cities uh, in an election year in order to benefit Trump in a way that um, he's going to shrewdly use later on in the election. And it's Again, it, it, it's, it's this thing that I have seen people on the right very upset about this, and I've seen people on the left obviously very upset about this, uh, but it seems like Trump's base has really been able to either completely overlook this or they've made excuses for it. Which, if, um, you, if you're using that muscle, I think this, this was never going to be the straw that broke your back, you know? Because that's been something the, like stretching into weird positions to excuse things why this versus any other abuse of the constitution the the greater alliance i think for people who are inclined to defend him to the ends of the earth the greater alliance is to him not the constitution not to human rights not to logic like it, it it is what it is i guess and to that end i think it's important to note that this did not start under Trump. We saw this, um, I have a very close friend of mine who was protesting at Standing Rock under the Obama administration when they were trying to put the Dakota Access Pipeline in. And they brought in federal officers and protesters there, indigenous protesters, mm-hmm. were um, hosed with water and intimidated and arrested. And those because they were hoses, like the ones that you saw yeah, in, in absolutely. the absolutely. Yeah. This is, they were, tactics were used against them to clear them off the land so they could put a pipeline in for for reasons that relatively trivial yeah (laughs) right yeah i mean they were trying to put a pipeline in 
in order to it was it was a oil. deal that was made under yeah under the Obama administration for oil, and they didn't care that this was indigenous land. They didn't care that this was probably going to uh, harm the local community. It was like anti-environment plus eminent domain sort of thing. Absolutely. That happened under Obama, and I think there is a, an argument to be made against the slippery slope where um, under Democratic administrations, not that, not to say that that started under Obama, well, because but that, it, it occurred under Obama. The act that permitted it then was an expansion on an act under G.W. Bush, which is unsurprising, I'm sure, but, but the fact is that, yes, you can trace it in these smaller iterations and, yeah. you know. Down the slippery slope. Yeah. And I think that we see small steps being taken under Democratic administrations that lend to huge steps being taken under Republican administrations against our civil liberties. Well, because it's emboldening the executive uh, when it is the executive that's doing it or any right. body or entity. But, yeah, it, as we see with Which Trump why- himself, he gets emboldened each time he gets away with something. Uh, like yeah. the executive order was a toe in the water. It, it, it's kind of a national scale and a long-term scale of like, well, we tried this, and yeah, people were mad, but what happened, right? Right, which is why it's, it's like so important, I think. At Guantanamo, it's like, well, yeah, there was some Exactly. Tests, but. That happens under Democratic and yeah. Republican administrations. I think what's so... And it's the same with immigration, right? We, we mm-hmm. saw um, massive deportations under Obama. We saw his head of DHS at the time touring facilities where children were locked in cages. And I, will I think say that's it's why... it's of a different scale. Um, and that's... It's of a different scale, I but it still is, occurred. And there was no... there was no pr- in the slippery there slope was, equation. No, absolutely. But there's very little pushback from liberal voices or mainstream, and this is like somewhere where I, I start to sound a little bit, um, my, 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 my very uh, anti-government, big government <laughs> roots start to yeah. show, but um, you see very little pushback from liberal media, you see, ver- and, you know, ma- quote unquote mainstream media, you see very little pushback from liberals in general when it happens under a democratic president, and my, my problem with that, my qualm with that, mm-hmm. is then it's expanded under Republican administrations Less scrupulous, for, I would argue. Yeah. to these ends, and, you know, uh, I actually saw a tweet that I wanted to, to cite, mm-hmm. because I think that it is exactly what I'm trying to say here, but um, uh, Aram, and I apologize if I've mispronounced this, Aram Shaban, at A-R-A-M-S-H-A-B-A-N-I-A-N, uh, this was his tweet. He said, people keep saying Portland is a dress rehearsal for the rest of the United mm-hmm. States. What they don't realize is Standing Rock was a dress rehearsal for Portland, and that was under Obama. The problem is Trump, yes, but post-9-11 security state is the core problem we're facing. And I think that uh, the point that I would I would take from that is that we do live under a, a government that can very easily implement a police state, and that has been building for many, many years. Well, Dick Cheney we really been... implemented that. It, you Absolutely. talk about post-9-11 being the catalyst. He knew what he was doing. It was to empower the executive to overcome the Patriot The Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. The Patriot AOM. Act was passed under Bush mm-hmm. and uh, under a Republican president, and we have seen kind of the tentacles of, of that authoritarianism of that police state grow yeah. to the point now where it's just, it's so easy to see our civil liberties being attacked on a, a national scale because we've illegal. been slowly inching toward right. this reality. Absolutely. And I think is, so uh, it's, it's very tricky. I, I mean, I tend to, I think a balance at the risk of sounding too relativist that there's a point where a slippery slope becomes a fallacy because there's a point 
and drawing this line is difficult. Um, if it were easy, we'd have an answer to everything. But there's a point where permissible exercises, where the balance comes out more good than bad, uh, turn into impermissible, more risky executions of that. And so you think about times when the federal government has deployed law enforcement to be helpful to integrate the schools. Post-Katrina. Yeah. yeah, uh, Even recently in New York that they were helping with uh, handling the bodies in the COVID crisis. And so I think that there are times when, and the AUMF that was authorized relatedly under GW Bush, but then Obama used it, for example, against... The authorization of military force in 2000, I believe it was four. Something like that. Post 9-11. And Obama was criticized for using it against Gaddafi in Libya. I just think of of how you look at the slippery slope and that nothing is as black and white as it's easy to portray it in sound bites. Because then you also have to look at the potential alternatives, which we will never know. What if... Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I also don't agree with the use of the AUMF against Gaddafi in Libya either. Because we don't need to get into you know that extent of the Obama administration. Tonight. Being yeah. that there is more nuance to so many of these conversations than just this is where the line is, all or nothing, black and white. And the difficulty for any of us is is that none of us can draw a line. You and I could try. Brighter minds could try. Sure. And it's really hard to decide where that should be. But we can definitely decide what's too far. And I think that that's where we are now. And I think steps before this that allow this to happen were also too far. (laughs) I think that a good and clear way that you can gauge a lot of, not every, but a lot of these choices are, is it being made to for the good of citizens or to suppress citizens right but see yes initially they would say that energy and oil access is for the good of and there would be enough citizens right and there you could make the argument either way however it's this idea of like yeah they can make the argument that building a pipe i would disagree with that argument but they could you know the keystone pipeline Built, that was for the good of Americans, right? The ultimate good. Um, it would be eminent a cynical domain, argument, but you could yeah. make it. Right. But at the same time, well, yeah, and use of eminent domain is, is another like, conversation that we should have at a future time. Literally the words, it's like, for the greater good. Yeah. The use of individuals, land, for uh, the use of the collective, which has many times been used poorly as well. Yeah. And this right. is not with any... And that's where like, nuance, as we, as we yeah. always have, that's where nuance comes into play. I don't have any answer. I don't have any, like, predisposed place where I would put it. But I do struggle with it, and I want everyone else to struggle with me. <laughs> because I think it's oversimplified right, think, on both sides. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, I'm not making a an anti-big government, pro-small government argument. But if, if you truly are a, a person who commits themselves to fighting against government abuse, this should be a clear yeah. battle for you to fight. This is, is an easy uh, you, one. You should right. be... Which is it's obviously not for some people because a lot of people who may consider themselves small government conservatives are uh, defending Trump's deploying of federal officers to yeah. Portland. Makes me think it's just a label, though. I don't know that there's any ideology that, there. Yeah, that, it seems it seems like blatant hypocrisy to you and I, but <laughs> that figure. is like yeah. genuinely, if you are someone who sees themselves as anti-tyranny, anti-government abuse, this should be an obvious battle for you to pick sides on. The other thing that I do want to at least say, there's more to say on it, but we'll get to it someday. And we talk about it actually in our late Bloomberg episode 
where we talk about stop and frisk policies under the Fourth Amendment, which was a relatively recent episode. Because remember that happened this year. Mayor Bloomberg ran for president. No, that was a different decade. I don't know know. where you're from, but that wasn't us. But so we talked about it then in the context of stop and frisk. And when because the Fourth Amendment is obviously the prohibition on unreasonable search and seizure, but detention of a person. So what eventually can turn into arrest is a seizure of the person. So there's a, a body of law about what you need before you do that to a person it's reasonable suspicion of a crime and some sort of exigency if you don't have a warrant, which would be the case in all these circumstances. And there are some limits on when it becomes detention versus just like kind of stopping someone to chat. The most recent test that we have, and this is oversimplifying, so nobody quote me on missing nuance, but the bottom line is that it's, it's a kind of totality of circumstances analysis But if somebody does not feel free to walk away from the interaction, or if they do not physically have the power to walk away, so if they're being coerced, if they're being told to stay, if they are physically restricted from leaving for a period of time that's beyond, you know, a fleeting couple seconds, that becomes detention. That is a seizure of the person. That is a Fourth Amendment event. And you get into all this mess about needing reasonable suspicion and then probable cause if it becomes an arrest. So any of these circumstances where you hear about somebody being put in a car, um, driven around for a while, actually arrested, that requires all these baseline reasonable suspicion sort of tests under the Fourth Amendment that a crime has been committed by that person in a way that requires this right now. And then obviously uh, due process under the Fifth Amendment, which is federal officers, haha, and then Fourteenth Amendment, which is state. They're pretty analogous. But you need to give somebody whatever process is due and that becomes the question but some process if you are depriving them of life liberty and or property so an arrest deprives somebody of liberty you need to give them some process then if you're going to arrest them and that often is retroactive like you give somebody a trial or a hearing or some sort of whatever but after you've already yeah. arrested them and put them in jail. And that kind yeah, of covers it, this uh, weird middle land where people are, like, being thrown into unmarked vehicles and yeah. driven around for two hours and then released. And now I don't think the facts are super clear as to how long and where and what's happening, and I'm sure it'll come out, but those are things to be considering. Right, these are just anecdotes because we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And same with habeas corpus. That I think we've talked about that recently, too, and this will be the last thing. But, God, you think of all these goddamn threshold constitutional questions that are coming up. But habeas corpus was a huge thing in the formation of our country because in the United Kingdom, people would be arrested and held for years without anybody telling them what they were charged with. So it's like, prove, have the body. What is the substance of what I'm being charged with? And so you can bring a writ of habeas corpus if you don't know what you're being charged with. And I've heard, a, nobody has said habeas corpus yet that I've heard, but I have heard a lot of people being like, we're not sure what they're being charged with. We're not sure what yeah. the crime was. So I can't help but wonder if that's going to come up as well as people are held. So Yeah, it seems like a violation of rights on several fronts. A lot of, yeah. Absolutely. So that's our... That's, that's, that's on Portland, guys. I'm sure we're going to cover this more in the future because it seems like there's going to be uh, updates on this and it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, please um, be safe. He's also sending uh, federal troops to Chicago as of today with about And the this is not going to stop with Chicago and Portland. And if you think it is, I don't know what to tell you because this is going to keep going probably until the election. Yeah. And it's very scary. Yeah. So 
uh, so, such oh, a weird way to end the episode. But. We do want to give John Lewis a, at least a verbal tribute. Man was incredible. Uh, Representative John Lewis. Um, what a giant. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, honestly... I don't even know I, I can't to think of put it into a sound Yeah, I don't even I don't know how to. He was he was 80 years old. He spent 35 34 counseling. years in Congress. He was um the youngest a freedom fighter who was arrested in 1963, I believe. He uh I think was the youngest person to speak at the March on Washington, which was where the I have a dream speech, MLK's I have a dream speech took place. I I just have not been able to condense adequately the tribute that he's due and I feel like I'm I'm not I don't qualified think we, we even can but yeah. what I will say and what I have said as my best and only condensed version is he had two tuxedo cats and he liked to play Adorable with them little cats. and they're really great photos of him just ah like a really positive person for what he had been through yeah um and good trouble yeah, he was Get into good trouble he said yeah he yeah he's the he's uh, the common quote that's always attributed to him is him talking about how he um, he got in trouble, to, but it was good trouble because necessary he was fighting trouble, for civil rights. Trouble. Necessary mm-hmm. trouble. And, um, and it means he be constructive, was, too. Yeah, absolutely. He always says that he was smiling in his mugshot because he knew he was on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. Also that, fought against, um, I guess, the initial plan for the the Freedom Rides was to bring the body of uh, somebody who had been lynched to George Wallace's office and put it on his desk. <laughs> so he's like, that was not good trouble. Yeah, that seems disrespectful yeah. to the person involved. Um, but the like kind of involved. making the balance yeah. and being true to yourself and true to the cause and knowing where that I think he is. was very wise. Oh yeah, gosh, and yeah. I, I honestly, it's going to be impo- impossible shoes to fill. You just can't find another man like him. So, um, just do what you can to fill the void yourself. If you really want to honor him, yeah. vote. Yeah. Register to vote. I know voting rights are not, um, they're not available to, because of they're the country we live right in. Like, now. not yep. everyone has we'll uh, the ability to vote. But if you do, vote. Because I think that's the yeah, and make the best efforts if you him. can. Because uh, that's something. And fight that's for the voting rights of others, going to be including felons, uh, including people who have been through our criminal justice system. Um, they yeah. also deserve the right to vote. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Get there's out. that uh, tribute to him. Um, the other personal thing I want to say: a good friend of mine from college, Lee Wilmot. She, uh, I barely knew her when I got to college, and my dad died, and she was so good to me. She bought me books, she brought me wine, she got me a candle, like, she was the sweetest person. Her dad just died last week, and so I want to give her a shout-out and let her know what she means to me, and let her know that she's got a We're world We're thinking about her. Yeah. Cheers to dads. Cheers to good dads. Goddamn. To good and dads. It hurts. I have a good dad, you have a good dad. It really Cheers hurts to, good dads. to lose them when they're people who you miss, um, mm-hmm. and it's a good problem to have in the scheme of things, but boy, it hurts, and, uh... The one silver lining is being able to give back some support. It's a good reminder to call my dad, too. Yeah, that's, yeah. I'm going to go right. talk to my dad. We'll see what he has to say. He's been awfully, uh... Yeah, ask him, ask stone him face. What, what, what he thinks about this. <laughs> All right, yeah. folks. Ooh, Mackenzie, where neck. can people find you? Where can people reach out to God you? God knows, man. I am at Brennan on Instagram and on Twitter. I am Get Me to a Nunnery with the number two. Um, and you can also hit us both up through the website, which is exceedingly persuasive, spelled like the show name, dot com. It is under construction, so take it with a grain of salt. Ethan Lindsay's doing the Lord's work, 
but it's doing stuff. So And you can find us there under our contact information. There's some blog posts to check out. My Instagram is at Brooke Angeline. My Twitter is at BKE Rogers. You can DM me on Instagram. Uh, reach out if you have any ideas for what you want to hear on the show yeah, or if you just want to say hi really or if you have a meme. I do love a good meme. Brooke loves um, a good meme horror movie recommendations, just recommendations in general. We have a lot Who's of time on our hands, me? folks. Who's going to stop Who's me from putting yeah, just pop rocks in my pussy? That's the government different. can't do it. They can't. They can't do it. <laughs> All right, folks. All right. As always, stay safe, stay sane. Be good, be safe, be We're happy, and put the pop rocks in your mouth. Okay, good night. Put them in your mouth where they belong, you degenerates. Bye. Bye. <laughs>